Podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a salute to the fans. All your questions answered as we celebrate year one of positive regression. And we've got some great nerdy questions for you, for us to answer, really, supplied by you guys. All that plus a check on our scouting network. But first, as always, this is episode 45 of Positive Regression. This is the Ron Hornaday edition. Yes, Hall of Famer Ron Hornaday had a short career on the cup level, but two of those races came in Japan in a Felix Sabatis-owned number 45. And David, I give you full credit on this one because I did not remember Ron Hornaday in a 45 in Japan. Neither did I, but I promise our listeners I am prepared to pull everything out of my ass to find a driver that matches our episode number. And here it is. I mean, I think this is our backdoor (laughs) to talking about Ron Hornaday's truck series achievements. I mean, they they were good enough to get him into the NASCAR Hall of Fame as a truck series driver however polarizing that might be. But you can't argue what he was able to do in the truck series. 51 career victories. Uh, that's a percentage of 14.2. Uh, his most wins in a season was seven, coming in 1997. I'll save it for you, Alan. He was age 39. Oh, I was going to hit you with that if you didn't. <laughs> Something weird about that season. He finished fifth in points. He registered a peer of 2.904. He was driving a truck owned by Dale Earnhardt. Um, but the weird true fact, he won the most races that season, but never at any point led the point standings. That is weird. Kind of bizarre. Yeah. A year later, everything fell into place. He won the championship in 1998, winning six times, earning a 3.741 peer. He was, we'll say, less balls to the wall that year. Fewer laps led, 889 compared to 1,213 the year prior, but also fewer bad finishes. Seems he corrected uh, every mistake he made in the year prior. But, Alan, I think the the truck series heyday, maybe when, uh, when the general public came to know it as something, it started as a short track series, it began its evolution into uh, kind of a hodgepodge of all sorts of tracks, and Ron Hornaday was at the crux of that. Uh, when I think of the truck series, I think of Ron Hornaday. Absolutely. Four championships, the 51 wins, like you said. David, he had six wins and a title at age 51. Not bad, especially for what we know about what happens post-age 39. Uh, something to look forward to for some of these drivers. Actually, it, w- it was funny. Matt Crafton brought it up. This was the media day right before the, the championship race uh, this year, just a few uh, weeks ago at this point. And Matt Crafton had Ron Hornaday on his mind saying, you know, Matt Crafton had two titles at that point and was saying, look, w- one more title would just put me that much closer to the legend, Ron Hornaday. Like, that's how he's thinking. And he brought up how Ron Hornaday raced to 51 and age plus after that. Uh, just thinking about maybe how long Matt Crafton wants to stick around in the truck series. So, uh, Ron Hornaday, Ron Hornaday still pretty relevant in terms of, uh, on people's minds. And yeah, a Hall of Famer, uh, not bad for the truck driver. So that begs the question, minor leaguers in the Hall of Fame, where do you stand? I, I get it. I mean, that's the discipline, right? I mean, modified drivers, a, a certain discipline. The truck series, a certain discipline. Uh, we, we know there are some in there because of what was the Bush series or Grand National, what have you. 
I don't mind it if they were the all-timers. You know what I mean? Like pioneer of the truck series, if you will. I remember when he got inducted, who was in the room kind of all sitting together. It was him. It was right next to him was Todd Bodine and Mike Skinner. Like, you know, they, they almost went in as a group as if it was an acknowledgement of, of the first class or the initial inaugural pioneer class of, of the truck series and what they've meant to the NASCAR series. And Ron Hornaday was the leader of that. And it was cool to see them all sitting and reminiscing together. Yeah, very true. And, uh, and look, he, he was, uh, one of the few drivers that, uh, that went to Japan <laughs> around, yeah. around, uh, this time of the year. Uh, in the nineties. And that was actually a, a fun exhibition race. Um, kind of wish we still did that. Uh, that'd be, you know, kind of, kind of fun to, uh, cover or, or at least travel to. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe down the road. We're always looking for, uh, for new cities and markets. And, uh, I don't know. That might be an outlet. Yeah. Two of those races. I already mentioned one winner, Mike Skinner. The other, of course, Rusty Wallace. But this is episode 45. This is, was the Ron Hornaday edition of Positive Regression. Let's get it started. This entire episode, David, will be all listener questions because that's why we do this, right? I mean, that's why we started this podcast to get good information out there, but also to have people appreciate it. And when we ask for listener questions, we can see that people are listening and appreciating and thinking critically, if you will, and thinking of questions that, that are, are nerdier than I ever thought possible, but they're using that, that, that thing in their brain that says, Hey, I feel like we've been listening to this podcast the entire season. Let me ask a question relevant to those subjects that we've brought up. So I'll just start right off, if that's okay. From William Soquet, what happened to the crew chief game you guys played at the beginning of the season? If you remember, David and I almost had a, yeah, I guess we'll call it a crew chief draft as to who would be the best strategists out there uh, during the entire season in the cups in the cup garage. And we each made a team. And David, uh, of course, keeps track with the numbers of green flag pit cycles and all that stuff. So, David, let's look at the results. Okay. Of course, we were measuring uh, spots gained during green flag pit cycles. Alan, your team consisted of four crew chiefs, Chad Knaus, Chad Johnston, Alan Gustafson, and Johnny Klausmeyer. One's bad, I know. Chad Knaus gave you 32 spots. Chad Johnston lost you 12 spots. Alan Gustafson gained you 14, and Johnny Klausmeyer lost you 130 oh <laughs> spots. Your your total for the season, negative 96. Oh, no. Um, that doesn't sound good, but I'm only hit. My only competition is is one, right? Is you. So maybe, just maybe, I don't know. Tell, hit me with it. Um, if, if you recall, my first pick, I had the first pick in the draft. I took Trent Owens. He turned in negative two positions. Wow, big turnaround. Um, but we'll, we'll go into that, uh, later. He, he had a, he had a better season than, than what that suggests. My other three were Luke Lambert, Danny Stockman, and Randy Cox. Luke Lambert gained seven spots on behalf of Daniel Hemrick. Danny Stockman earned 57 for Austin Dillon. And Randy Cox, my bellwether, 70 oh. spots. For Corey Joy, for a total of plus 132. 
that makes me your winner. Uh, dinner is on you, and I have a feeling you're going to be sending the invoice to Johnny Klausmeyer. I, I have to ask, because Klausmeyer's the elephant in the room. Do you have any prepared statements for this? Uh, I don't. I, I actually have more questions than answers, and I texted you a question like this because uh, when I saw the numbers, three of the four worst crew chiefs in terms of positions lost during green flag pit cycles this year were from Stuart Haas Racing. And I asked you, does it have anything to do organizationally? I mean, do organizations uh, strategize together? And is that the right approach? And I was interested in your answer because Klossmeyer, Childers, and I believe uh, Bugaravich all were not really good when it comes to retaining green flat pick cycles in 2019. Only one of them has an excuse, and that's Rodney Childers. Because really, what's it to him if Kevin Harvick loses a few spots under green. They had the fastest car in the NASCAR Cup Series. The driver is Kevin Harvick. Uh, I know that he had a passing dip this year, but he's, look, he can still get by, you know, somebody in the middle of the running order. So Rodney Childers not too worried about that. That probably does need to improve. The other two guys, though, not much of an excuse. When your drivers are Clint Boyer and Eric Almarola, those guys need all the track position they can get. I don't know. I throw my hands up on what they did this year. I don't really understand. Uh, we talked about Eric Almarola in our Requiem. He would qualify well. He would have good first stages. It was all downhill from there. Uh, Clint Boyer had very strange stage strategy. Uh, Mike Bugaravitz would usually uh, pit him in advance of a, a stage if the scenario caught that way. And that was, a, I mean, he was on the brink of not making the playoffs. He needed all the points that he could get. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer as to why they did it, but uh, no, not a great year for the Stuart Haas crew chiefs as a whole. Well, that's what tanked me anyway in, in my in my team. What helped you on your side? What what stood out to you amongst your uh, winning team? Yeah, um, look, Randy Cox is exceptional. And during the off season for the athletic, I have um, a, a long form piece coming out about him and go fast racing and really his approach to green flag pit stops. And in a nutshell, he makes the most sensible choice every stop. And this isn't, this isn't analytics fueled. This isn't a gut feeling it's just what he thinks is the most responsible move to make every single pit stop, and he stacks track position that way. It is in the numbers. He did that last year with Matt Benedetto as well. So, look, he ranked even second on normal tracks this year with positions gained. Trent Owens actually ranked first if you omit drafting tracks and road courses. Uh, he had a fantastic year for Chris Busher. It didn't show when we included the drafting tracks and the road courses, so it did not help me. But Owens, again, uh, a forward-thinking strategist, just finding spots for his driver. He might be Ryan Priest's crew chief next year. It might be Ricky Stenhouse's. That hasn't been announced. Someone is going to benefit from having him on their pit box. I was happy with my team for uh, for the whole of the year. And and honestly, I think your your guys performed very well, except for Klaus Meyer. Yeah, you know, I will be more educated and, and make better choices next year and during our crew chief draft. And I look forward to buying you that dinner, David, but uh, th <laughs> thank you to William Soquet for uh, reminding us of that and bringing it back. Our, our first question of the night, let's move on to the next one. This one from Michael Taylor. Is there an inverse to passing stats? 
Who's the best non-Newman defender in the Cup Series? How would you even quantify something like that? Interesting question, David, because we do look at passing stats. That is part of your bread and butter on motorsports analytics. But is there an inverse to that, a defender, if you will? Based on surplus passing value, the most efficient passers this season were Martin Truex, Kyle Busch, Joey Logano, and Kyle Larson. It might not be like for like to suggest this, but I'm going to guess the drivers who were the best defenders were Martin Truex, Kyle Busch, Joey Logano, and Kyle Larson. I mean, to put it simply, when you talk about pass efficiency, they are passing cars and those cars are not passing them back. And that, that you could look at as defending, right? Yeah. And, and look, I don't subscribe to the notion that Ryan Newman putting up a fight while being passed is a good thing. If the side-by-side battle takes so long that it gooses the number of pass encounters while increasing the delta to the car two spots ahead in the running order, I'd argue that that sort of thing does more harm than good. This is precisely when you need to give in a give-and-take scenario. Uh, Martin Truex used to do this a lot early in his career. Daniel Suarez did this in his first two seasons. He did this early in the year. If you go to NASCAR.com right now on their driver stats page for the 2019 season, Matt DiBenedetto had the biggest green flag pass total this season. What it doesn't say is that DiBenedetto also had the second biggest times passed total. His pass encounter number was through the roof. And if he were a little more efficient, he might lose out on track position in the short term, but he would be better positioned on the track to gain time on the cars ahead of him in the long term. So for me, the Newman thing, I just don't buy into that being something that we should celebrate. I mean, I I, I get it. I, it. Sometimes you do have to just wrestle another car for a position. But for me, the guys that are hardest to pass are uh, that are the best defenders of their positions are simply the guys you cannot catch in the first place. And at the tip top of the running order this year, that was Truex, Bush, Logano, and Larson. Well said. Thank you, Michael Taylor, for the question. Next one up from Sean Smith. Ah, let's prepare for this one, David. If each British political party were an active driver, who would be each party? I'll say that one more time. If each British political party were an active NASCAR driver, who would be each party? Uh, where do you even begin, David? Well, I was drinking my tea and reading <laughs> uh, reading the BBC News, and uh, the, the answer struck me. So, <laughs> Sean, forgive me if I butcher any of this, but... Yeah, I had to do some learning. Turns out there are a lot of political parties in Britain. Uh, I hope no one minds. I'm going to focus on the on the main four, uh, which are the Conservative and Unionist Party, the Labour Party, the Scottish National Party, and the Liberal Democrats. Uh, I didn't focus on political leanings. I'm, I'm more interested in just the characteristics involved. So here we go. Uh, the Conservative... And Unionist Party, for those that don't know, they support the free market. They are anti-European Union, which is an internal singular market, means that folks throughout Europe can move freely and work within those countries, and they are economically moderate. My choice for this, Kyle Busch. 
He believes drivers <laughs> who don't have wins in late models shouldn't be in the Cup Series. Also, he's all for an open market. He wants to compete and win races in the Xfinity Series and the Truck Series. He wants to just he just wants to do that. No regulations, do whatever all the time as much as he can get. So Kyle Busch is my pick for conservative and unionist. Uh, the Labor Party, socially democratic, but as of earlier this month, they are neutral on Brexit uh, and the European Union. They want to let a vote play out. My choice for this, Brad Keselowski. Hmm. He strikes me that he would be a blue-collar, pro-union guy, and that's what the Labor Party is built on. Uh, but as for the Cup Series rules package, he didn't like it initially. He voiced his opinion of it after the 2018 All-Star Race. However, his actions demonstrate someone neutral on the matter, just trying to find a way to succeed within the, the path that's been laid out. He attempted to adapt. He hired Coleman Presley, if we remember, uh, as a spotter. Presley, for A.J. Allmendinger, won the All-Star Open race in 2018. So he was one of two spotters with a win to his name with this rules package. Lest we forget, Keselowski won the first race with this current rules package at Atlanta. Keselowski also embraces the races at Daytona and Talladega, the most socialist of racetracks. He's the one who took umbrage with the blocking at the front of the field. If we remember him at Daytona in July, he was the most vocal about that. So he is my choice uh, for the representative of the Labor Party. The Scottish National Party. Go on. <laughs> the Scottish National Party supports the European Union and uh, following Brexit wants independence for Scotland. Oh, come on. This has got to be Kyle Larson, right? He loves what I NASCAR provides. the same provides. thing, yes. He loves what NASCAR provides. It gives him a living. However, he wants his independence to go run sprint cars, midgets, anything on dirt, really. 2020 is a contract year for Kyle Larson. He will be a free agent at the end of it. And it is expected that the restrictions or lack thereof on him running his beloved dirt cars will be a major sticking point in negotiations. He wants that freedom. Uh, so Kyle Larson, my pick for the Scottish National Party. And uh, I'll wrap it up here. The, the Liberal Democrats, liberal, socially liberal, strongly supportive of the EU. Martin Truex, he's talked about how he's fine adapting to different rules packages. He understands why they're implemented. And he demonstrated that he can have success with high horsepower. He can have success with the current package. He scored the most wins this year. He's just sort of amenable to everything NASCAR is throwing at him and seemingly always finding a way to succeed. So, uh, Sean, those... Those are my picks. I hope I did your question justice. Yeah, Sean, I don't know if you were trolling us or just trying to have fun, but look what David just did. David just pulled it out of wherever and just answered your question, and that's what we do here on Positive Regression. So I hope it helped, and maybe it led to some understanding of European politics. Next one up from Jacob on Twitter. Actually, looks like Jaggy underscore on Twitter. With Cup seemingly committed to high downforce... As a development driver, what's the point of running in the Xfinity series? Would it not make more sense to stick to trucks instead of practicing a discipline that is much less bearing and developing good habits for your success? 
Again, Jacob is asking, with Cup committed to the high downforce package, why even do Xfinity when trucks seem to be more, at least comparable downforce-wise? Uh, should should your talents be focused on there if you're looking ultimately at a Cup career, David? I understand why Jacob asked this question. It's a good question. And I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts as well, Alan, but I want to hit you with an extreme hypothetical. Let's go harder at this than Jacob. I'm just going to throw this out there. My son comes to me and says he wants to go Cup Series racing. And I say, okay, we're going to skip Legends, Late Models, Trucks, and Xfinity. I'm going to buy a 2021 Cup Series car and rent out Charlotte Motor Speedway where we test every single day. Millions of laps to the point that he knows all the ins and outs of the car Alan, what is wrong with my hypothetical? You're practicing alone. You're not, you need to race. Yeah. So <laughs> you need the talent around you. Yeah. Competition matters. So I, I'm actually kind of with Jacob on this, but what would have to happen for a young driver to stick in the truck series and learn that to become a better cup driver I think the other top prospects, if if they made a deliberate decision to all compete in the truck series next year instead of Xfinity, then yes, that'd be the series to be in. But you can't do that. You've you've got to go where the most competition is. And there's no guarantee that this rule set lasts forever. I recall when the COT was unveiled and there was a fan backlash then of um this is nascar's future well no it's it's a future it's it's one of the futures just as this current rule package is a future we're going to see something different 10 years from now i'm sure but alan i'm going to i want you to think about this one who won who won a lot of races in 2018 with higher horsepower martin truex kyle bush and kevin harvick who won a lot of races in 2019 with a low horsepower? The same three guys. The best yeah. drivers and teams are adaptable. The only way to become adaptable is to experience virtually every feeling a car could provide. So learning that, competing against the best the sport has to offer, that's how those guys became so good. They didn't have experience with lower horsepower. They just figured out what to do differently with a car on the way up, having years and years of experience competing against the best. I think that's an excellent point. The adaptability, something Kyle Busch will uh, ultimately always point to when he, when you talk about his talent and why that was so important. He'll point way back to his dad, uh, way back in Legends cars and just telling him how, how important it was to be adaptable in all different sorts of race cars, which is why we see him continually winning in trucks, Xfinity and Cup in the same series in the same year because of the different types uh, of cars and, that, and rules packages that they are racing. David, I like what you said about the competition. I did a little homework on this and just checked with engineers and posed the question to them because it was an interesting question from Jacob in terms of if you're only looking at the downforce factor. But again, if, if you're not clear... A truck and just, just because trucks and the cup car may have, you know, a similar theory behind them in terms of the downforce factor, completely different vehicles, right? I mean, there's so much more side force on a truck, ride height rules. I mean, they, you know, they have them in trucks. They don't have them in the cup cars. I mean, we're talking completely different ways of these vehicles driving. You add in the competition. You can't just skip from one to the other. I, I see where Jacob's going with it in theory, but you know, the rules are always changing. The, the, the 
the different packages are always changing. I think adaptability will always be one of the best qualities to have. Next up from Josh Medor. By all metrics and measurements available, who was the most average or mediocre driver in the Cup Series in 2019? As in, the driver who finished near the median in the most categories. So David, who is the most average or mediocre driver in the Cup Series for 2019? This is a good question from Josh. I would have uh, not looked at this otherwise, but I believe I found a couple of guys. I looked at the median and the average. Ty Dillon secured the median production and equal equipment rating of 2019. It was a 0.542. He was close to the median crash rate of 0.22 with his 0.19 rate. And his surplus passing value was just shy of the minus 0.72% mark. Uh, that one was tough, but he was probably the closest to the median in those cases. Uh, but the average, uh, I think we have a more concrete answer here. Alex Bowman, his peer was 0.944. The average peer was 0.965. And uh, for those keeping score at home, Average for his age, which was 26, was around 1.0. So pretty, pretty average across the board. His surplus passing value was minus 0.68%. The average for the series was minus 0.46%. He was within 2% of the series wide rate on preferred groove restarts and within 4% of the series wide rate on non-preferred groove restarts. And his average red zone positional gain was 0.1 position. So um, I, I'm going to say Bowman flirted closer to average. Ty Dillon is your median man. Interesting, because Bowman had the win. So you know there will be listeners who maybe haven't been listening the entire time that say, how could you say a winner is average? But wins, David, we, we've tried to explain. You can't always look at them as a metric always, correct? Uh, no, I, I, the, the way I view it, wins are for the record books, not for evaluation, uh, just because it's so team dependent. Uh, now a driver can carry a fast car to even greater heights than what are expected. And that is what we're trying to measure with something like a production and equal equipment rating. Uh, so I think consistency is, is probably going to be his, uh, his goal for 2020. Thank you, Josh. Next up, Brian Starr says, do you see Kevin Harvick retiring after his contract with Stuart Haas Racing ends in 2021? Yes. Me too. Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll go for uh, it. I mean, I, I just think, look, at that point, he'll have just completed his age 45 season. The yeah. last thing you want to do, there's two options, right? Sign a one-year deal or sign a multi-year deal. When you're age 46, I think the last thing you want is a multi-year deal, right? I mean, you're getting toward the end of, of your career where you just, uh, this is when it, drivers age out, right? And so there's the multi-year deal, the one-year option. I mean, who wants to keep going after all that? I mean, we're seeing drivers move on nowadays. We're no longer seeing the 50-year-old cup driver. And you know, again, who knows what the, the series will be like then in terms of the rules? Will it still be anything like what Kevin Harvick has spent the last 18, 19 years doing. Uh, production we saw uh, as fast as he was. We saw his passing numbers drop a little bit this year, and he is getting older. And with your age, as David has explained multiple times, you do see a drop in production. That's just a fact of life in any sport. Um, but, David, the one thing I will say, if as a racer, if Rodney Childers keeps giving him fast race cars, even at age 45, isn't that hard for a driver to turn down? 
Yeah. I mean, even I, I have it right here written in my notes. I think he would either return to Stuart Haas or retire. I don't think there's going to be a middle ground. I guess something crazy could happen and Joe Gibbs racing could come after him. But when you think of Kevin Harvick's career, you know, he presents himself as this, you know, blue collar, hard scrabbled guy from Bakersfield, but he's been first class when it comes to equipment. He has never had a car that wasn't capable of winning races. So if Stuart Haas and I think they've proved the last few uh, years that they're pretty shrewd when it comes to driver contract negotiation. Maybe Harvick's earned some leeway there, but I don't see him uh, going to, you know, front row motorsports for what? To just to keep it kicking along? I, 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 he hasn't competed in second tier equipment yet. I don't see it starting. So it's either retire or continue on with Stuart Haas, and I'm going to pick retire. Yeah, and again, age with age comes diminishing skills, and uh, Kevin Harvick has earned a nice retirement, right? For all the reasons that we hear lately for drivers retiring, family. Uh, fortunately, they've got money in the bank. They're, you know, Kevin Harvick is still from that generation where the money was not only good, it was great. Uh, so uh, he's got everything he would need, including a hell of a legacy by age 45. So it would surprise me if he came back after that. So we'll see, though. Next up from Jared Colville, uh, maybe my favorite question of the night. Which NASCAR Cup Series season had the most current and likely future Hall of Famers running full-time? Uh, David, you and I have gone back and forth on text this week about how we're going to answer this, and we've kind of agreed and disagreed, so we'll both set our parameters. But again, the question is, which NASCAR Cup Series season had the most current and or likely future Hall of Famers running full-time? Tell me how you approach the answer to this question. Okay, I considered every Cup driver already in the Hall of Fame and included active drivers who have won championships. This takes some subjectivity out of the equation, I think. Since full-time wasn't completely a thing in the early days, I made some executive decisions as to whether or not to count those seasons. I mean, really, if, if the driver had an impact in a decent percentage of races, I counted it. And from what I can See, the banner years were 1987 and 1988, each with 13 Hall of Famers competing. In 1987, we saw Alan Kowicki, Benny Parsons, Bill Elliott, Bobby Allison, Buddy Baker, Cale Yarbrough, Dale Earnhardt, Dale Jarrett, Daryl Waldrip, Davey Allison, Richard Petty, Rusty Wallace, and Terry Labonte. And the next season, Cale Yarbrough was not full time. However, Mark Martin was. Yes. Uh so so those were the those were the two banner years. Uh there were twelve seasons containing eleven Hall of Famers. And I and this is something that we need to talk about, Alan. But th- those seasons were 1961, 1962, 1963, then a 30-year gap till 1993, 2002, 2003, 2007, 2009 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2013. So uh, that that is that's what I had. I went as bare bones as I possibly can on Hall of Fame selection. I promise that is not what you did because you sent me a text message today that stopped me in my tracks. Well, I, I had to question your sanity. No, 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 no. Well, 
okay, I approached it somewhat similar. I'm like the bad kid in school. I'm going to just be honest with you, David. I did not do as much research as you may have done. What I did, I, I just went to, I picked out random years where just, just to give it a look, right? Uh, you know, I, like 1976, I just thought of, of Richard Petty and David Pearson went down through there. I thought of transitional years, like, 1992, like that, that Hooters 500 to end the season when Jeff Gordon came in and Richard Petty was still there. Like, does that skew the numbers at all? Uh, I did the same thing with 2001, obviously with Dale Earnhardt and, and um, the, the Daytona 500. Um, so we, we had a similar approach. Uh, I agree with you. You know, some of the numbers I found 1988, again, the Daytona 500 that year, 14 Hall of Famers. Uh, so I'll give you that one. Uh, but I, then I was looking at other ones. I mean, uh, what did I write down? Uh, 1987 had 13 of them. Uh, the Atlanta, 13 of them in Atlanta 2001. Um, 2002 Daytona 500 had 13. 2014 had 13. You know, I started looking toward recent years. You think when you still had Tony Stewart and Jeff Gordon around. And what I did was I counted Dale Earnhardt Jr. And as one of the, I know you only counted champions uh, that would get in to reduce some of the subjectivity. I counted all the champions and Dale Earnhardt Jr. I left off some of the questionable ones, like say potentially a Ricky Rudd or a Sterling Marlin or a Michael Waltrip. Or, That's the one. Uh, stop, stop me dead in my tracks when you when I saw Michael Waldrop. I just had to put the phone down, honestly. I know. I, I'm saying, look, yeah, to reduce some of the subjectivity – uh, but I, I think some of these numbers will change. You know, the Hall of Fame, it can be an odd place. Some of the nominations that pop up on there as to what or who qualifies or how many, you know, they'll need five nominees or 20 nominees a year and five get in. But, uh, you know, you could throw Danica Patrick out there. You know, will we look back and, you know, and look back and think of 2014 and I have to add another one. So, uh, the only, the only hard line I made was Dale Earnhardt Jr. Plus all like the Joey Logano's, Brad Kislowski's of the world, Kevin Harvick's that aren't in yet, all, all the cup champions. So, uh, I, I don't think, I think we agree on 1988, but I think like the, the later, or the earlier part of this decade, like 2014 when Stewart and Gordon were still around, those were years of 13 Hall of Famers, at least, at least 13 Hall of Famers were racing that season. Well, listeners, you heard him say Danica Patrick. Alan can be reached at Alan Kavana <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, please, please send all your vitriol uh, that way. You uh, never know, man. No, I, I, I understand what you're saying with with Dale Jr. I, it's it's probably a lock that he gets, and he's eligible next year, correct? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're close. Um, but the 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 most important question that I want to ask you, um, Alan, there were. There were seasons where we're talking like 11, 12, 13 Hall of Famers. Absolutely. Is over a quarter of the field being in the Hall of Fame, does that – is the bar too low? That seems extraordinarily high because we would never see a percentage like that across any other sport. That is a good question and I think a valid criticism. Um, I, I think looking back, you know, a lot of people can, can make the argument that maybe there should have just been, you know, 20 first, you know, when they first open instead of that inaugural, uh, a five person first class, you know, which they should have got their due, obviously, Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt and the France family and what have you. Um, and Junior Johnson. Uh, but I, I can see the argument why some say, you know, the, the initial first class should have had, you know, the 25 people. And then you do a percentage of the vote afterwards. Cause right now it's five every year, no matter what. And, and you think event, I mean, five a year, 
they're going to run out of people soon. They're going to have to turn, you would hope or you think they're going to have to turn toward the percentage vote that would help um, not limit, but it, it would it would make it cut down the number at least every year of, of who gets in by the vote. Because right now it, it's five that have to get in every year. And I don't want to say it lowers the bar, but it makes the bar questionable and makes for these debates as to what is or who is a Hall of Famer or what stats make you a Hall of Famer. Uh, I, I thought Mark Martin was an odd – well, I just thought it was going to be a benchmark when it happened, right, because he didn't have a championship. He has a resume miles long in terms of wins. But it made me wonder when Mark Martin's name came up, what would happen? Because that is going to set a benchmarker to, okay, now people who did not win a championship, that opens the door for them, right? To look at their stats and see what else they did and how they contributed and all that stuff. But at some point there has to be a bar, you would think, right? And so what is that bar? I don't think that's been defined yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you thought Mark Martin was the bar, he has, it turns out he's cleared the bar by a country mile. So, uh, yeah, something's going to have to change. You can't keep being five people per year. There also is a peculiar lack of crew chiefs represented, uh, or mechanics, just people that touch cars. Uh, and there were some great ones that just are not discussed. I don't even think Jake Elder has been nominated. Smokey Eunuch is a, uh, a curious omission. Kirk Shelmerdine not being on the ballot uh, after he was originally on, on the ballot. Yeah, there are a lot of questions. There, there's going to have to be some sort of radical shakeup for Hall of Fame induction procedure. But, uh, this was a fun exercise. I'll give Jared credit. Absolutely. Uh, he, he definitely made us think about this. And, uh, yeah, you're right. Maybe, maybe, well, I don't know. I did like answering the Brexit question, but, uh, probably my favorite, uh, question of the, uh, of the, episode. Yeah, because it's an answer that can change if we look back in five or 10 years, right, to see who has indeed made it. And we go back and look and say, oh, maybe there was 15 Hall of Famers in that race. And we just didn't know it quite yet. So we shall, uh, we'll have to go back and see. I look forward to that. But uh, good question, Jared. Uh, next up uh, from Mike Buck. Mike Buck, this was my first year following NASCAR, and your show, Positive Aggression, gave me the nutritional value I needed. What could be the positives and negatives of the upcoming doubleheader at Pocono? Also, how can I keep my chops up during the offseason? So a two-parter, the positives and negatives of the doubleheader at Pocono, and how can I keep my chops up during the offseason in terms of racing knowledge? David, I'll let you talk about Pocono. Okay. Um, I, I think there are some positives. Uh, it reduces travel. It cuts a week off of the schedule that's already too long. And it allows fans that travel to that race the ability to stretch their dollar spent on travel, lodging, tickets, what have you. Uh, I think uh, on the docket is five races in a two-day span um, look, that, you know, that's, that's a pretty solid reason to make the trek to Pocono if you were ever on the fence about it. I mean, you're, you're getting two cup races, Xfinity trucks and Arca. Alan, I think the negatives, it falls on competition. It would be a bad weekend to have a bad weekend because the same car will be run across both races and Sunday's starting lineup will be lined up based on an inversion of Saturday's lead lap finishers. So if you have a bad Saturday, you are absolutely setting yourself up for a bad Sunday. 
An early hole can just kill two races, and we've never seen that. Yeah, and so it will be, it will be different. We know that. It will also reduce the schedule by a week or two or however you look at it, uh, which is a positive for many that that uh, I think would travel with the sport. Uh, I look forward to it. You know, we, we look towards something new, so I think those are positives. Uh, unfortunately, I think you just have to kind of live through the weekend, and I, and I get all what you're saying in terms of if you roll off the truck bad, it's going to be a lot of catching up times two, right? I mean, that's what you just see every week, and you're going to multiply your problems if they're indeed two races. They're going with shorter races, I believe. So, you know, like 300 miles, uh, I don't forget the exact mileage, but it won't, you know, we're not looking at two 400-mile races. So I think that'll spice things up a little bit, but I, I love the idea. David, let's tackle the second part of that question. How can I keep my chops up if I'm a racing fan during the off season? You know, keep your mind right, keep it uh, fresh uh, about what you should be thinking about in terms of uh, the the upcoming NASCAR season. I would offer two suggestions: uh, perhaps a subscription to the Athletic or motorsports analytics you can ask your family for subscriptions to those because i know personally david i have fun just scrolling through all of your data and uh just looking at it and just seeing you can sort everything and just seeing what pops up who's good at what who had bad pit cycles uh who's a good passer who's good in the red zone stuff like that so uh not to i will plug it for you david because you give good information and also as a race fan, I can tell you, I just love uh, mining YouTube and racingreference.com. Uh, I love racingreference.info. I, I love going through those sites and just looking at either uh, historical data or data from 2019 and just looking up little nuggets of fun, fun information because it just uh, keeps your mind fresh and uh, one of those, oh yeah, I remember that or look at that. I didn't remember that at all. Those, those are a couple things I would suggest. Well, I, I appreciate the uh, the plugs, Alan. I'll I'll add to that. I'm actually still writing my normal amount for the athletic. I'll have some in depth pieces. I'll have some analytics 101 pieces in January. You will see my SWOT analyses, uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for all the major organizations. And I will continue to post on MotorsportsAnalytics.com a lot of prospect stuff. Some look into weird trends, uh, Xfinity series, truck series, eventually my prospect rankings will return. Uh, so for our listeners, lots of reading on the docket and well said about YouTube. I was just thinking after we did the hall of fame question, I'm gonna have to pull up the 1988, 87 seasons just to, to watch some races and see how competitive in fact they were, because if you're having, uh, that much talent, then, you know, it might be worth watching. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. And I hope you guys have a great off season. Uh, we're already a week or so into it. So, uh, not too much longer. Uh, unfortunately, the countdown to Daytona was well underway before we even in Homestead. So, uh, the off season, never too long, never too short. Let's finish up this episode with a look at the positive regression scouting network, something new we brought to you this year. Uh, David, uh, just quickly go through it. Maybe a quick explanation. And, uh, we have some, uh, good scouts out there looking at future talent. Uh, for sure. I'll actually just, uh, we've got three of them. Uh, I'll read them and, uh, and then we, we will reconvene afterwards. Uh, Brendan Wilhite is scouting Haley Deegan, 18 year old from Temecula, California. Brendan writes, NASCAR phenom Haley Deegan had a solid 2019 season. She won two races and finished with nine top five finishes and 18 top 10 finishes in the 28 races she ran between the KNN East, KNN West and ARCA. Both of Deegan's wins came in the KNN West, the first in the season opener on the Las Vegas Dirt Track on February 28th, and the second at Colorado National on June 8th. 
The biggest downside to Deegan's 2019 was a distinct lack of laps led. She led just 73 of 3,470 completed laps between all three series, with 66 of those coming in her Cannon West win at Colorado National. Leading more laps will likely be a key focal point in her continued development, both in the coming offseason and in the 2020 season. Deegan, who turned 18 on July 18th, remains arguably the most popular and talked-about driver outside of NASCAR's Big Three National Series, thanks to her fan-friendly demeanor and her social media channels and in media interviews. Her full 2020 plans have yet to be announced publicly as of this writing. Uh, we'll move from her to a, uh, a fellow Toyota prospect. Kevin Matz is scouting Ty Gibbs, 17-year-old from Charlotte, North Carolina. Kevin writes, Ty Gibbs capped off an impressive debut season with a win during the K&N West finale at ISM Raceway in early November. That trip to Victory Lane was his fourth during a year in which he secured 14 top five finishes across 18 collective starts. Ty has done exactly what he should be expected to do as a driver piloting the very best equipment, but there is a reason to believe he has the talent to match. He was observed to be a strong restarter during his rookie season and even displayed a penchant for retaining or improving positions from a non-preferred groove. There is nothing to indicate that 2020 will bring anything less than success for the 17-year-old. And finally, uh, Robert Cole, who uh, actually got a chance to meet while uh, while in Martinsville. Very nice guy. On Chandler Smith, he writes, When KBM announced that Chandler Smith would run four races in the 2019 Truck Series, he was already a short track ace. During the season, he backed up that perception by leading his ARCA team to an owner's championship with wins at tracks like IRP, Iowa, Elko, and Madison. Chandler will turn 18 years old in June of next year. Though his plans haven't been announced, it's likely he'll be back in the KBM 51 for as many races as he is eligible in 2020. If he can qualify for the playoffs and survive two eliminations, a tough task to be sure, but one that Ross Chastain proved is possible, he would be formidable at the finale. Why? because it's Phoenix. That's where the 2020 season will conclude. That's where Chandler Smith turned his last laps in a KBM truck. He finished third, proving his medal against series veterans Friesen, Rhodes, Enfinger, and Crafton, and even beat five of the six playoff drivers in the process. It's still November, but it's not too early to consider Chandler Smith as a dark horse for the title next year. We know he can win. All he needs is a truck. Robert Cole bringing the thunder. I like it. Yeah. I, and you know what? I didn't even think about that, but Tyler Ankrum this year was ineligible to participate in the initial races of the season. Same with Todd Gillen the year prior, but they were allowed to compete for a championship. If, if Chandler Smith can get in a truck and get his ducks in a row once he turns 18, that could be really interesting. Yeah, and look, it's been a pleasure to uh, be introduced to the talents of Chandler Smith now, by you, of course, David, who first uh, brought him across my uh, my vision, if you will, but also Robert Cole's uh, analysis throughout the season. Uh, really, Kevin and Brendan, they all gave really great scouting reports. Haley Deegan, interesting, because he mentioned um, her popularity, of course, and what, what she's got going, you know, in terms of the social media and how well-known she is, but her 2020 plan Plans still not announced. And my, my colleague over at Fox, Bob Pockers, talked to her not too long ago, and, and things still seemed up in the air. And you wonder, despite the sponsorship, despite her potential reach, how much on-track performance really does 
count still in where her future may go. Uh, you know, there, there are some cynical people who think it's all about money, but at this point with 2020 not announced yet, you, you would think with her popularity, uh, it would be a foregone conclusion, you know, the monster money or, you know, someone would pick her up and she'd have a ride because that, you know, she can bring that attention to a sponsor. But it, it looks like there are still some questions out there, which surprised me, David. Yeah. And look, I think she's going to have to prove that she's, you know, more than Travis Pastrana uh, is, is really the, the driver that I think about just had all the popularity you could imagine, but was a relative neophyte uh, when he came into stock car racing. Haley started at a younger age, but she's still having to clear some hurdles. You know, the, the Canon West isn't the strongest division. She's going to have to prove her medal elsewhere in a higher series. And uh, look, I mean, it was pointed out here by Brendan, just the inconsistencies. That's going to be something that she's going to have to clean up moving forward if she is to be taken seriously as a driving prospect. But all of them, all of these were great. And I enjoyed doing this uh, this year. Alan, we're going to keep the, the scouting network open for 2020. If you want to request a driver to, to follow and keep us informed about, you can do that if you go to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com uh, and sign up. If you don't want the responsibility of the scout and you just want to support the show, you are free to do that as well. There is a, a no scouting option. If you just want to chip in, that money goes to maintaining the quality of these podcast episodes. I, I'm, I'm thankful of all of our listeners, everyone in the scouting network. This was a lot of fun this year and I look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. You said it very well. And now that we're closing out season one, uh, this is our last episode until uh, the 2020 season. But yeah, thank you to everyone listening because this started off as uh, uh, what, I, what I was hoping would be a showcase of David's work because I was a fan and I'm a racing fan. Obviously, I'm a racing journalist, but I was a fan of his work because it made me a smarter racing fan. It made me a more informed observer of auto racing and that's what I wanted to uh, celebrate and I wanted to share and this was an opportunity to do that and all the comments from listeners and everybody time you download it uh, that, that has been just reaffirmed why exactly we do this and the feedback in terms of the questions you ask and meeting you in person and having conversations that you can tell have been informed by some of the subjects we talk about on here that's been the best part of this David uh, doing this podcast and I just want to thank every single one of our listeners because when we come back in february uh we're gonna try to just do it more and i hope you guys miss us because we will be back for episode 46 only in february but make sure you follow us on, on posregpog on twitter p-o-s-r-e-g-p-o-d and you'll know exactly what we are up to so uh well said david uh yes and uh and i will say alan has always been uh, we've always been friendly but he you have now become someone that i talk to every single day and it just so happens that once a week we record our conversation so it has been just a, a great time um spending this year with you and talking about all sorts of things uh nerdy things whimsical things 
uh, it's been a blast. So um, couldn't be happier to uh, keep this chugging along for 2020. Yeah, that's been the best part is we've turned my nerdy questions and curiosities. We've turned it into a podcast and other people have joined along, which is the best part. So uh, yeah, don't forget we are available. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, wherever you're listening right now, we are available. If you like what you are hearing uh, we know you do because you send us questions. You, you find us at the racetrack, which is so cool. But uh, a rating or a review uh, really does help us. It helps uh, It helps this podcast gain visibility. Word of mouth always helps. So if you're a racing fan, if you're a fan of this podcast, one way or another, tell somebody else because uh, we want to rope all of you in as many as possible. Uh, it is much appreciated. David, we know the season's over. We know we're taking uh, the season break for the podcast. But what are you working on? Yeah, uh, all of our listeners follow me on Twitter, if you don't already, at David Smith MA. I'm providing plenty of content during the offseason on The Athletic and on motorsportsanalytics.com. Just behind the scenes, I'll be working on ways to improve positive regression. We have a few ideas we'd like to implement and execute. We'll take some time to weigh whether they're viable, but uh, we shall return. And when we do... Uh, we'll be somewhat well-rested and ready for the new season. Yeah, and I won't lie, David, I'm not working on much just because that's the nature of the job. Once the season is over, uh, there, there's, you know, a, a break, just like the teams are getting. They're working much harder than I am, frankly, but um, not much on the Fox side. You know, Race Hub takes a break, but we will be back in January. Don't you worry. Uh, I'll do some radio on Sirius from here and there. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter. Let's talk some racing. If you have questions, if I don't know the answer, I know a guy that might. So <laughs> hit me up at Alan Kavana on Twitter. And uh, yeah, David, uh, I always thank the listeners as we should, but I want to thank you as well. So David, thank you for letting me be a part of this. Thank you for always answering my texts. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for making this a real thing. Positive regression. Uh, we wouldn't keep doing it if we didn't have listeners and feedback. So thank you everybody for David Smith. I'm Alan Kavana. We will see you in 2020. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.